Take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to salvage something out of this morning. When I was growing up, uh, I was a big wrestling fan. Now, for some of you in this room, that, that fits right with where you were. For some of you, you think I'm crazy. But when I was growing up, we were wrestling was not known to be entertainment. It was thought to be real. In fact, uh, I like to tell this story on my dad, and my mom's here today, but my dad's not, so I can tell it on him. Uh, We grew up down the street from a guy that was a professional wrestler. We lived on Rose Drive, which is a suburb of Rowellen, which is a suburb of Dyersburg. And we grew up down the street on Rose Drive from a guy that wrestled in Memphis. Now, Memphis had this weekly wrestling show. Jerry the King Lawler started in Memphis. He's from Memphis. And he was the king of Memphis, and he had this weekly wrestling show. And my neighbor down the street was one of the guys that would wear a mask and get beat up every week on the Memphis wrestling show. One particular week, he got in a particularly difficult brawl with Jerry the King Lawler. And the king's signature move at that time was to throw fire in somebody's face. And so my neighbor down the street, who we were friends with all of his kids, was down there on Saturday morning live from WMC TV 5. He was in this match, and Jerry the King threw fire in his face. My dad was concerned for him. Because your neighbor gets fire thrown in his face, you need to go check on him, right? So dad went down the street to check on Mr. Wayne. And Mr. Wayne was out mowing his yard. Face looked fine. My dad said, Wayne, what happened? I thought your face got hurt. He said, listen, we've got a special balm in the wrestling community that heals everything real fast. Can't give the illusion that it's not real, right? Well, his influence in our neighborhood was so much that we had actual wrestling rings in my neighborhood with turnbuckles and ropes. And you do not know this probably. Some of you may. You may have read this on the Internet somewhere. I don't know if it's on my Wikipedia page or not. Uh, But I was the light heavyweight champion of Rose Drive. My brother was the referee for the match, and he did hold the guy's arms down so that I won. But I was the light heavyweight champion. And so when we talk about wrestling, it's important to understand where we're coming from. And what does that have to do with spiritual warfare? Actually, there is a connection we'll get to in a moment. But over the next few weeks, what I want to do is to talk about the royal rumble that is happening now. And and, and that phrase simply means that you and I are a part of a major conflict that is happening. And it's described in Ephesians chapter 6, and it's kind of Paul's concluding thought on the process of what's happened in Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, he's told them some things about who Jesus is, about what Christ has done. He's talked about how they should live out as a result of that. And then we get to chapter 6, and he says in verse 10, finally. Now, over the next four weeks, we are going to cover this entire passage all the way to verse 20. We're just going to get through verse 12 today, but he says, finally. And the word finally there means finally, but it also means of great importance, or I want to make sure you get this before we go. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This morning, what we're going to talk about are some ground rules. Whenever there's a boxing match or a wrestling match for real, not the entertainment kind, but even in the entertainment kind, they establish certain ground rules. And we're going to get to the part about the spiritual armor. And I know when people read this passage, they like to go there and talk about each piece of armor. And we'll get there. But I want to make sure that we understand some things before we get there. And so we're going to lay some ground rules about what this conflict is all about. And it comes straight out of verses 10 through 12, but we're going to go in reverse order. So we're going to go from verse 12 back to verse 10. And the first thing that we need to understand if we're going to understand spiritual warfare at all is that there is an invisible world around us. There is an invisible world around us. It just tells us in verse 12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But then it gives all these things against authorities, against powers of a dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the idea there really is that there is something outside of what we see that impacts what we do see. The idea basically is that there is a world that is completely unseen that is acting even at this moment where we are. Now, in some ways we can understand that. And I say, do you believe in God? And even most Americans would say, absolutely, I believe in God. And if you believe in God, then you believe there's something outside of what we see. If I were to ask you, does God have the right or does he ever intercede in human affairs, physical things? Well, absolutely. He's God. He does that. He intercedes. He acts. He does something in our physical world. And so there's no problem with that. Where people get a little problematic sometimes is when you start to talk about angels and demons and spiritual forces outside of us. But just plain and simple, Scripture teaches that even though we can't see it, there is a spiritual world that is interacting and impacting even what we're doing right now. That's not just here where Paul talks about it. It's throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament... There's a story that I love about the prophet Elisha who is engaged in this battle with this evil king. And the evil king wonders how in the world this guy keeps knowing the plans and knowing how to counteract and all of that. In today's world, we might say that the evil king wanted to know how Elisha kept reading his mail. He knew what was coming. And so they're talking about it, and they say, well, maybe he's in good with God. And they talk about it, and they say, the only way to get rid of this is to overwhelm them with force. And so they come, and they have a huge military force attacking Elisha the prophets and the people of God. And as they're getting ready, the people start coming to Elisha going, man, you've got to do something. Look out there on the hills. Look at all those people. Something's got to be done. And Elisha says, don't worry about it. But don't worry about it. Have you looked up on the hill? Have you seen the chariots? Have you seen the weapons? What do you mean don't worry about it? He says, don't worry about it. The Lord will take care. Elisha prays, and the people's eyes are opened. And behind the physical army that they see, suddenly behind them is the spiritual angelic army of God, ready to fight for his people. It's amazing to me sometimes how things that make their way into our popular literature or popular movies 
hearken back to a story in Scripture. One of my favorite sets of movies that's come out in recent years is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And if you've seen The Return of the King, if you made it through the eight and a half, nine hours of movie to get there, there's a moment when all seems dark and they're barricaded in this place and it seems like the evil is going to overtake everything. And about that time, Aragon shows up out of the river with these kings of old that sweep in and fight. It's almost a visual image of what is described there about Elisha the prophet. Not just there, in the book of Daniel, Daniel is said to be praying, and he prays and prays and prays, and nothing happens. And then he gets a message that says, Daniel, your prayer has been heard, but there is a prince of the kingdom of Asia that has prevented the angel from getting here to do what you've requested. Very clear that it's some kind of force blocking what's happening. You get to the New Testament, and in the New Testament you have people like Paul. You can read here in Ephesians 6, or you can go to uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 5 and read. Uh, John talks about spiritual warfare. Peter talks about spiritual warfare. Uh, Luke talks about it in the book of Acts. But the person that deals most with spiritual warfare in the New Testament, anybody have a guess who that is? It's Jesus. Right? A good portion of what he does is what we would today call exorcisms, right? Cast demons out of people. Now, there are all kinds of theories out there about what he was really doing. There are some people that say he was psychosomatically healing people, that they just think they were sick and he healed them, that he was really an early psychologist that understood how the human mind worked. The problem is Jesus doesn't act like he's a psychologist. Jesus talks to the demons, right? He says, come forth. There's that incident, that strange incident, where he takes the demons out of one and puts them in a herd of pigs. So he obviously thought there was something to it. In fact, in his temptation account, remember he's tempted, and he's tempted in the wilderness, and who does the tempting? Satan. And when Jesus talks, he's in the wilderness by himself. To whom does he talk? Satan. He thinks they're real. Now, here's the thing for me. You can look at Old Testament passage. You can look at New Testament passage. You can look in the midst of Jesus' ministry and say, those are symbolic language. That's, a, that's psychosomatic. You can try to explain it away. Here's all that I know. The Old Testament people believed that there were spiritual beings outside of us. The New Testament writers believed there was a spiritual, unseen world. Jesus believed there were spiritual forces around us. And when it comes to my faith, if the Old Testament teaches, the New Testament teaches it, and Jesus teaches it, I believe it. That's the way it is. So there is an invisible world around us. Now, that's not a big deal if it doesn't make a difference in our lives. But what's very evident from Ephesians chapter 6 is not only that there is an invisible world around us, but secondly, that we are involved in a war of intense fury. Verse 12 is interesting. It says, for our struggle. Now, the word struggle there is an interesting word because it literally means wrestling. Now, hear me for just a second, okay, with all sensitivity to where we live. It does not mean 
wrestling. All right? It doesn't mean what I kind of referenced earlier, the entertainment wrestling. It refers to wrestling, like the Olympic high school sport wrestling. Now, I've never participated in actual wrestling, in a sanctioned you know, wrestling event, but I've seen some on TV. And this is what I know about wrestling that has been passed down from around the time of Jesus. It's not, this is not a new sport. It's from Jesus' time, the same kind of wrestling you'll see in the Summer Olympics in 2012, is that it is close, hand-to-hand, man-on-man combat. It's not something that we're doing from afar. It's not something that we're doing at a distance. It's not something we're kind of involved in. What it says here in this passage when it says our struggle is, literally the word struggle there means intense fury, conflict, hand-to-hand. It's going on. It's happening all the time. Our struggle. And we need to understand that it's something as Christians that we're called to be a part of. The first service, I told a little bit of the story of my grandfather, Merle Larson, who was um, at Hickam Air Force Base in the islands of Hawaii in the month of December on the most infamous day in history, the day that will live in infamy. And what I talked about is the night before Pearl Harbor was bombed, my grandfather went to bed like he went to bed every other night. And when he woke up the next morning, the bombings have started. He's in the midst of a conflict he didn't know was coming. Now, here's the truth. People would say after that, that the United States was already at war. We just didn't know we were already at war. The truth is, in the Christian life, we are already in this conflict. There are just a lot of us in this room that don't realize we are already in the conflict. Just saying I'm not going to be a part of it is not an option. We're involved in a war of intense fury. There's one thing I want to point out there. The word we. I chose that word intentionally. I didn't say you. I didn't say I. I said we. Because throughout chapter 6, verse 10 through 20, Paul is writing to the people who are a part of the church at Ephesus. And we have a tendency when we read Scripture to think about how it affects me. But the truth is we ought to read Scripture to ask how does it affect we, us. This is one of those times when I wish that the translators of Scripture would translate the word you as y'all. Our struggles against flesh and blood. Put on the full armor of God so that y'all can take your stand. You all put on the full armor. All of you be strong in the Lord, because that's what the words mean. Y'all, be strong in the Lord. Here's one last thing I want to point out before we go to the next point. Verse 12 is very interesting, because it tells us that our struggles are not against flesh and blood. As a pastor, one of the benefits of being a pastor is, you get to see people at their best, their best moments, their most excited when God has touched their lives. It's a great thing. I get to visit in hospitals where people have just have children or they get great news about what the doctor has told them or someone who thought that they might not make it is going to make it. And so I get to see some of the best of people's moments. I get to be right in the center of people when they're getting married. 
We get to do that ceremony and watch them at that important time. It's great. One of the downsides of being a pastor is the opposite of that. You get to sometimes see people at their worst. One thing sometimes people will say to me is just pastor or Lyle, you know, life is just hitting me hard right now and I don't know how I'm going to make it. It seems like the enemy is really attacking me. And here's the interesting thing. When I ask, well, tell me what's going on, it almost always goes back to somebody. Well, so-and-so did this, or so-and-so said that, or my boss is doing this, or my family is doing that. Or I, and it's almost always somebody. And what Scripture says here is that we must come to understand that when you have real conflict in your life, it's never about somebody. It's about what's going on around that. Now, I'm not saying that, that the enemy doesn't use people sometimes, or that the enemy doesn't use us sometimes if we allow it. We'll talk about some issues of possession, oppression being used and all that as we go on. What I do think is clear is that what Paul is saying is when conflict with people or things come into your life, try to look past the physical and ask what's going on in the spiritual. We're going to talk a minute about some of the schemes of Satan, but one of the things that he tries hard to do is to divide us. The second thing we see there is we're involved in a war of intense fury. Here's the third thing. We have an intimidating enemy. Now, this is kind of the end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12, but it says that we have to take our stand, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, against the devil's schemes. And the idea there really is that the devil is trying in a concerted effort to bring us down. John 10.10 10 would tell us that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That his intention is to take us from where we are and to move us in a different direction. That if you're somebody that does not yet believe in Jesus, that he wants to take away your opportunity. He wants to take away your desire to see Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, he wants to steal your joy. He wants to ruin your witness. He wants to destroy you. And it tells us there that he's not a small enemy. It says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces. The idea there isn't so much that there's this hierarchy and we're supposed to analyze it. Sometimes TV preachers or other pastors will put charts up and here's this one and that one and that force and this force. I don't do that. What it shows is that there is an orderly fashion to which Satan goes about his business of destroying us. We've got to be aware of it. Here's the truth. Satan does not like when God's people begin to do the things that God intends for them to do. Satan also doesn't like when you begin to talk about stuff we're going to talk about over the next four weeks. Because you're bringing into the light things that he would rather keep hidden. And when that happens, when you begin to speak and to talk and to think about spiritual warfare, you're going to notice it happening in several places. I've known for several months now that, that in January we were going to do a, a discussion of spiritual warfare. The Lord had led us to do this series. And I've just kind of been aware of things that have happened in our lives over the last few weeks that have kind of brought distraction in. I mean, of course you have the distraction of the holidays. We all have that. Which isn't it interesting how that uh, the enemy has been able to turn a celebration of the birth of Christ into a distraction in our lives in a lot of ways. Right after... 
Christmas, we woke up and it was 60 degrees in our house. It's not supposed to, we don't set our thermostat on 60. We set it a little higher than that. We're not, we're not trying to save that much money. So we knew our heat had probably gone out, and so we called some people. We got a guy over there, and he looked at it, and he said, all you got to do is jiggle the wire. He showed me the wire to jiggle, and so it would go out. I'd go and jiggle the wire. So at 2.30 in the morning, I wake up. It's cold. I go down. I jiggle the wire. It kicks back on. Everything's good. I go back to bed. For some reason, Susan didn't think with the new baby coming home that jiggling the wire is the long-term solution. So... We get through Christmas, perfect time to have to make a major purchase, right? That's when we all like to look at that, end of December, 1st of January. Let's all go out and buy a central heat and air system. That's distracting a little bit. This past week, we had one of the most glorious things that can happen in your life. Our baby girl was born. Unbelievable week. Great just to hold her, to see her, to wonder what life is going to be like with her, to wonder how she's going to... entertain us to wonder how she's going to bring enjoyment into our life we haven't focused yet on the grief or the pain but the joy first couple of nights Madeline slept beautifully last two nights nobody slept beautifully now here's the truth usually on Saturdays I'm by nature a night owl. I'm usually up to 11, 12 o'clock. That's just how I am. But usually on Saturday nights, I try to go to bed at 9, 30, 10 o'clock. I get up really early. I'm here. Part of the reason I do that is because if you fall asleep in my sermon, it's okay. If I fall asleep in my sermon, there's a problem, right? So I try to rest. And I, I'm not suggesting that Satan put the, the impetus in my five-day-old daughter to cry till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. But I do know that if I allowed it to, what happened at 3 o'clock in the morning could be very distracting to what's going on today. You have to always be aware of spiritual things. Some of you here today are here and maybe you're having a little more difficult time concentrating than at other times. Maybe it's you that woke up with a 60-degree house this morning. Maybe you are the one that didn't get a good night's sleep last night. Maybe you are the one that's thinking about the lunch that you've got in the oven and if this preacher is going to be quiet before 12 o'clock so we can go get that. Maybe there was a song that we sang that you just didn't really hit you right. Or maybe the video was a little, uh, I just don't understand that. Well, none of us understand it, but maybe you didn't like it. It's just a little harder today. Let me tell you this. If you will honestly attempt in the next few weeks to see through what we're going to be teaching and to understand how it applies to your daily life, you're going to have conflict all over the place. You just will. And it leads me to this. We must respect but not fear our enemy. It tells us in verse 11 to put on the full armor of God. Now, here's an interesting thing. There's a lot of discussion about how you take that. What do you mean by the full armor of God? Here's an interesting thing. It is God's armor, not ours. 
And it tells us in verse 11 that we aren't to leave any of it off. It's not optional clothing. It's not cafeteria plan. Choose what you want. We are to have the full armor because the enemy that we have is powerful. In fact, Peter would say that our enemy roams around like a lion looking to whom he may devour. The better word there is intimidate. But what God understands is that our enemy is attempting to intimidate us from doing what God has called us to do. So he says, put on your full armor. Respect your enemy. Understand his schemes. But you don't fear him. God has overcome. Now, just real briefly, I want to give you, and I gave these to you. Some of you may remember this. I gave these out at the first discipleship training class I taught here. We did a, a thing on spiritual warfare, and the first night I gave you five things that Satan will do in your life to attempt to get you off track. And it will be things in disguise. And if you haven't written anything else down today, uh, on the back of your bulletin or in your Bible or anywhere, here's something to write down. Five ways that Satan will attack you that you must respect but not fear but be aware that it's going to happen. Number one, and they're not going to be on the screen, so you just got to write them, okay? He makes little things big. Have you ever been in a conversation? You had a good conversation, good visit, you're at somebody's house, you're at lunch, you're at supper, or you're in, here at the church, and just as you're walking away, the person to whom you're talking says something that just doesn't hit you right. Just something. And it's kind of the kind of statement that you don't want to ask about or make a big issue of, but you just kind of walk away. But that afternoon, suddenly you begin to think about that statement again. Well, what did they mean by that? Well, that wasn't very nice. And before long, you work yourself into a lather over this... In- significant statement that was said at the end of a conversation and now you're upset and you're mad you don't like that person anymore i'm not talking to them anymore i don't know what business they think they've got coming to that church acting like that and just gradually it builds and it builds and it builds sometimes this happens in a marriage relationship one little word tossed to the side suddenly becomes something that grows. And when you're in an argument about something that doesn't even come close to relating to this anymore, you say, well, you're the one that said. Now it's a huge deal. You've seen, I've seen families split over insignificant stuff. Churches have split over insignificant stuff. We'll make little, he'll make little things big. Another thing he'll do is he'll make big things little. Well, I know my family's important. That's why I work 120 hours a week. I know my family's important. That's why I'm out there making money for them so I can make sure they're provided for. I know church is important, and I make time for it when I can. But, but right now in my life, it's just not a good time. Well, I know that that doing that, that that reconciling with that person is important. But i got to go to the game. Here's the third thing. He'll get you to carry tomorrow today. Now, there's a real short word for that we use sometimes. Anybody want to guess what it is? Worry. Right? Some of you said other words. That's okay. I didn't hear it. Don't worry about it. Worry. Worry is carrying tomorrow's concerns today. Remember what Jesus said about that? He said, each day has enough concerns of its own to worry about it then. Don't think about tomorrow. 
But you've all been a part of this. I've been a part of it where you worry so much about what's going down the line that you forget to live in the moment right now. And if he can't get you to carry tomorrow today, he'll get you to carry yesterday today with the regrets and the problems and the issues. And the number one thing he tries to do is he tries to divide you from your Savior. He'll get you out of God's Word. He'll get you out of time with Him. All those commitments you made last week and placed up here on the front, if you were here and you wrote those and you put them down there, I can almost guarantee you that last week, some of you made commitments up here, and last week you've already been attacked and not being able to get some of that done. He doesn't want you to be involved. Scripture says that He is a real enemy, but we must not fear Him. And here's the reason. is because we fight from victory, not for it. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Here's the truth. Verse 10, that last part, that mighty power part, that's two words that mean might or power or strength. And throughout the book of Ephesians, when the Apostle Paul refers to God's power or might or strength, the one thing that he has in mind is the power or might or strength that was used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says what he's reminding them of here is that you need to be strengthened by God because he has even conquered the grave and nothing is too big from him. He has already won the victory. New Year's Eve was an interesting New Year's Eve for us because we didn't have the boys with us. And so Susan and I decided we were going to take the afternoon, the evening, and spend it together. We were expecting pretty soon, and so we thought we'd have a, a, a date night. Went to a movie, got something to eat, all of that. Well, in the midst of all of that, Tennessee, you all know I follow Tennessee, Tennessee played two games that day. There was a basketball game where they played Memphis, and there was a football game where they played Virginia Tech. All right? Well, yeah, I saw somebody hold up. They only played one game. Right, David? They were supposed to play two games that day. And so I wasn't going to be there to watch them, and so I just taped them. Now, I know here, Tennessee-Memphis might not be a huge game. But from West Tennessee, Tennessee-Memphis is a huge game. Clark and I talk about this. It's a big game. We're on separate sides of the fence with that, but that's okay. We still like each other most days. And so I wanted to see that game. Well, of course, they're playing in a bowl game. I want to see that game. So we go out to eat, or we get our food, we go to the movie, we come home, we relax. Susan's not really in the mood to watch a basketball or a football game, so I just kind of let them tape. And I find out the scores of both games. And in the basketball game, Tennessee won. In the football game, they scored a time or two. That's about it. They got beat badly. Here's the thing. I have yet to watch the football game. And in fact, I have deleted it from the recording. The basketball game, I've watched twice. Why? Because I don't want to watch us lose, right? I mean, that's not any fun. If, you're, if you know you're going to win, even when you get down, oh, <laughs> Memphis is making a run. That's good because we're going to win, you know. If you're watching the Virginia Tech game, man, we just scored a touchdown. We tied it up, but we lose by 20. You don't want to watch something you're going to lose. Here's the thing. We know the end. And Scripture says that if you're a believer in Jesus, you are fighting on the right side. And so we don't fight for victory, we fight from it. 
We're just laying the ground rules. Over the next two or three weeks, we're going to talk about some very practical applications of what this means in our lives on a daily basis. Not a weekly, not a yearly, but a daily basis. But this morning, I just want to ask you, what's going on in your life that you've been blaming on flesh and blood, but there might be a spiritual reason behind it? And are you willing this morning, as we journey together for the next four weeks or three more weeks after this one through this, are you willing as we journey together to give that to the Lord, that situation, that problem, that difficulty, and allow Him to work it out in your life as we walk through this?